He's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. Happy Friday. I'm Matthew Galt. And this is Cyber. You know, it's been a great week here at Motherboard. We've had many incredible stories, so many in fact, that we couldn't decide which one we wanted to focus on. So we're going to do something a little different for this episode. That's right, we're going full Cypher. If you're familiar with the show, Cypher is that infrequent segment we do where we decipher the week's biggest tech stories. Uh, It's kind of a potpourri of everything we've covered this week on the site. And this week, we answer these important questions. Is it illegal to run a private Club Penguin server? How is T-Mobile dealing with hackers? Why can't I get onto the raid forums? And what happens if you want to make an illegal trip to North Korea to spread the gospel of blockchain? Here to help me sort through these stories is the man who wrote many of them. It's Motherboard staff writer Joseph Cox. JC, how are you doing? I'm all good. I'm all good. Thank you for having me on again. Absolutely. Um, so now that our Linux talk off air is concluded... Uh, I do have another very important question for you, um, and it is, how far are you in Elden Ring? Uh, I am, I've played for 120 hours, and I feel like I'm nowhere near the end, which is insane. I don't know how I've spent that amount of time in this game. It's just taken away a chunk of my life. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out. You had a question for me uh, off air about how to get to the Halig tree, uh, where that tough yeah. boss is. Um, so do you remember the, the lift you took to get to the mountaintop of the giants? There's, you can, you should have it. You, maybe you don't, but, uh, you use that lift to get to the area of the hallowed tree. And that's, that's the hint that I will give you. So Uh, it's a multi-story lift. It's a multi-story lift. There's a, you can, you can, you can use a secret, uh, medallion to get to the, to that bonus area from the, from that lift. Now, how was I ever supposed to know that? How was I ever going to stumble across that? No, I mean, apparently, maybe you did. Maybe maybe you Googled it. I don't know. But that's why I keep having this game. Gotta, for better or for worse, yeah. You got to read those item descriptions. You got to read those item descriptions. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. I haven't, I haven't got time to read those. <laughs> well, it's because you are, it's because you are so busy doing the good work of reporting on all these various hacks and, and internet crimes. So let's get into it. Um, let's, let's get into this first very strange story that you covered this week. Cops arrest three people for running Club Penguin rewritten Beloved by Millions. Um, what's going on here? First of all, for the people in the audience who don't know, what, what is Club Penguin? So Club Penguin is basically an MMO, uh, you know, massively multiplayer online game that maybe people would know from their childhood. You know, it was around in the the early to mid-2000s. Disney uh, quickly took it over, and you control a little penguin avatar, and you buy new clothes, and you deck out your igloo, you know, normal penguin game stuff. Uh, And eventually, uh, Disney closed it down. And then that's when we start to see... Um, these sorts of fan recreations in the same sort of way, you know, when World of Warcraft um, moved away from its original vision or or play style, people spun up private WoW servers, right? This one here, um, the Club Penguin rewritten, was one of those private servers. All right, and so what exactly happened here? People got arrested over a private server? That seems a little ridiculous. 
Yeah, it does seem a little disproportionate uh, on the face of it, at least. And with that being said, we don't have all of the information readily available yet. So, you know, maybe something else will come out. But at the moment, all we know is that three people were arrested and then later released shortly after for alleged copyright violations around this private server, this sort of private instance of Club Penguin. Um, Of course, it is using assets from... um, Club Penguin, you know, the characters, the art style, is basically the same game. Um, so Disney did do some sort of copyright notice or demand for a takedown, that sort of thing, and City of London Police um, went and arrested these people. They even put a banner on the website that um, the site administrators voluntarily provided over after they were arrested. And, you know, when Silk Road is shut down, or as we'll talk about in a minute, a hacking forum is shut down, there's a big banner saying, we have control of this site. They did that on this Club Penguin uh, fan site, which, I don't know, just made it look way worse than it probably um, actually is. Well, and there's some history here that I think is interesting. First of all, um, you spoke with the, the, the police, right? Yes. Uh, well, they gave me a statement, and okay. they, they they said that you know we've acted on this um, as part of Operation Creative, and you know most people are not going to know what that is. But Operation Creative is something that City of London Police launched many many years ago, and it's sort of a ongoing investigation of piracy sites, and interestingly, the sort of ad ecosystem that goes around them. So they really care about well, if we have these piracy sites or something like that, maybe we can't shut them down. How about we put a stranglehold on the money that's going towards them by getting ads removed from them or something like that? And they've touted some apparent successes in doing that. They have also just shut down piracy websites as well. Here, they've done more of the latter. They've gone and they've shut down this Club Penguin remake. Well, and I want to throw a wrinkle in here because I think this is one of those things that people will be upset by, understandably. But there was this is not the first time a Club Penguin, uh, uh, you know, fan run server has been shut down. Right? Something similar happened almost just after, or in twenty twenty, right? Yes, and and this is why I stress that we don't have all of the information about this latest shutdown just yet. Maybe more information will come out. And that's important because, as you say, in 2020, this other Club Penguin uh, fan version uh, was closed down after the BBC uh, went on to the game and they found uh, you know, characters asking for nudes, making other explicit comments. And this is a game very much for children. Now, obviously... Most importantly, that is a child safety issue, potentially. You know, if you have actual children on here potentially meeting predators or other people, you know, making inappropriate comments, that can escalate from there. So, of course, Disney, on the other hand, does not want to be affiliated with that, very understandably. So they took actions against that site, and when the police shut down that previous version, they actually arrested somebody on suspicion of possessing child abuse imagery as well. We don't know whether a similar situation is applying to this latest case or whether it's just a more straight copyright sort of incident. But yeah, there is important context around that. Yeah. It's a question from the chat. Is this going to become a new thing, sending police after game recreations? And I want to, I want to answer this one because I think the answer is probably yes. Uh, I think we will probably see more of this, especially you know, I think the the metaverse stuff, you know, I refer to this as a metaverse kind of in the opening. 
Um, the metaverse stuff, there's a lot of like corpo kind of back and forth. And it's something that like places like Facebook are actively pushing. But I do think that we're going to become more and more, we're going to be creating more and more of these complicated digital spaces to inhabit. Um, and as companies figure out that they can monetize those spaces and make more cash off of them and have a pretty high level of control over them, more of a level of control than you would say, you know, in the real world, um, that yes, I think that they're going to be more litigious about protecting those spaces and shutting down alternate versions of them that are fan run. I think we're going to see, probably see more of this. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, we started seeing some of the, some, some movement like this in the MMO space too, but you know, time will tell. We'll, we'll have to see what happens. Uh, but that is my suspicion. Um, JC, what say you on that? Yeah, I mean, well, we've seen potential legal action, right? As I mentioned, the World of Warcraft one. I don't know. I don't think that ended any any arrests or anything like that. But as companies seemingly do get even more protective and vigilant around their IP, you know, and especially their online IP, yeah, I can totally see this um, continuing to happen as well, potentially beyond the remit of, you know, specifically the sort of kids um area yeah i think the metaverse is uh, a fair comparison to bring up because we're just going to see more of this sort of if not enforcement we're going to at least see more of these sorts of virtual worlds content whatever you want to call it right all right let's move on to the next story which is kind of a follow-up to something that you've been following and reporting on for a while now um U.S. extradites man who allegedly sold backdoored phones for the FBI. What is going on here? I guess the place to start would be this involved Anom phones. What exactly are those for people who may not know? Yes. So uh, since 2018, 2019, up to last year, there was a, a phone company called Anom, and they sent encrypted text messages. They were very popular among criminals. Uh, it then turned out that the FBI had been secretly managing uh, or running this company, along with a source and the Australian Federal Police. The FBI introduced a master encryption key, so every single message sent across the Anon platform, which again was used by serious organized criminals, ended up in the authorities' hands. That is a super TLDR version of what Anon was. Um, There was an extra step to that in that, the FBI and, well, other agencies really around the world, they, don't, they didn't just charge the people who used the phones who were obviously using them for crime. The DOJ went and they charged people who were selling the phones, even though they were actually selling them for the FBI. So it gets obviously re- uh, really, really messy and complicated. But there were 17 people who were charged last year for allegedly selling these devices uh, on behalf of the NOM. And news of their stuff has been very, very slow and quiet for for months now you know we're nearly coming on to a year of the the uh, anniversary of, of when this operation became public and uh this person w- is the first extradition i believe uh of one of those alleged phone sellers to the u.s so there's finally some judicial movement uh on that side of the case so what do we know is it it's bobby ayub right or at least that's his nickname or what he's been referred to as Yes, yes. So Bobby Oob, and he, uh, I believe, was a UK citizen living in Netherlands. I know he speaks um, Dutch as well. 
and he was listed in the indictment as an alleged distributor of one of these phones. So you'd have different sorts of ranks. You may have agents were very much on the ground talking face-to-face with customers. Distributors may do that as well, but generally speaking, they were sort of a step up above agents, and they would maybe manage the agents below them. So you can kind of think of them as a sort of maybe middleman or maybe a uh, a wholesaler, like that sort of thing. And then obviously at the top, you have Anom's um, actual management. And then silently above that, you have uh, the FBI. And there, there were plenty of distributors, you know, more than there were actually in the indictment. But the indictment includes people who seem to be uh, pretty established sellers uh, of these devices, as in they were pretty successful in getting uh, the devices into um, criminal hands. You know, again, this is all alleged uh, at the moment, and now that he's here he's well we we don't know is he going to take some sort of plea deal is it going to go to trial it's way too early to tell in the document that we reviewed the court records it did say that his defense team and the the u.s doj have discussed discovery which is of course you know the evidence that the doj has against this person and they should have provided that by now given the timeline in the court documents but that includes like 14 gigabytes of messages sent by just this one guy. Um, so there's going to be tons of material for them to go through to then decide what they want to do uh, when it comes to the case itself. Well, this one's so interesting to me because there's so many, and again, it's hard because there's so much we don't know, but this was a man who presumably didn't know that he was working for the FBI. Yes. Right. right. And, and that, yeah. And that's a common misconception sometimes that people can make in that they think these people were knowingly working for the FBI, like they were a mole or a informant or something like that. No, these people were uh, unknowingly working uh, for the FBI. And so in the course of unknowingly working for the FBI, perhaps committed uh, some crimes on his encrypted phone app, right? You mean 14 gigs of messaging is, that's a lot of data. Right. And their clients were not um, uh, look, there's a whole bunch of reasons to get an encrypted phone to have end to end encryption that are perfectly legitimate. You know, motherboard is pro privacy uh, and pro keeping yourself safe online. But the the kind of person that wanted one of these kinds of phones is not someone that's interested in privacy for personal or for, for strictly personal protection. Correct. Yes, generally speaking, yes. And because if you look back at some of the earlier companies that the FBI has investigated, one called Phantom Secure, I mean, they alleged, and then later through a, through a guilty plea from the CEO, uh, they provided phones knowingly to criminals. Now, that is obviously a big difference between something like Signal or WhatsApp. You know, those are free to download. Anybody can grab them. Plenty of criminals use WhatsApp, Signal, uh, Wicker, Wire, any of these apps. But there isn't a legal case to be made, at least not a convincing one, uh, that those companies are knowingly providing to criminals. Meanwhile, you have companies like uh, Phantom Secure and then allegedly, you know, EncroChat or Sky Global, some of the other ones we've covered, who knowingly provided these phones to criminal elements and catered to that market. That is where the legal argument differs and the DOJ, and particularly the prosecutors in San Diego who have led like this sort of um, campaign against the encrypted phone industry, they frame it under RICO, which is a law used traditionally to target mob bosses. So 
you can kind of the, what they allege is that Anom, even though the FBI secretly ran the organization, they allege that Anom was a criminal organization in and of itself, and that's how they're able to apply Rico. That's. I feel like I want to have a whole other tangent conversation with a legal expert about that, but it means it's perhaps beyond the remit of this particular show. We're going to pause there for a break, cyber listeners. We'll be right back after these messages. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Thank you, cyber listeners. Welcome back. We're on with Joseph Cox talking about the week's biggest tech stories. Uh, and the other one that really caught our attention this week and I think is going to have pretty far-reaching ramifications um, begins, you've got a pair of stories here. We'll start with the basics. Uh, law enforcement seizes raid forums, one of the most important hacking sites. What are the raid forums? Raid forums is a very bottom of the barrel. I'll say it was a very bottom of the barrel, low skilled hacking forum. You would go there and you would see people had dumped, oh, there's, here's the, link, the LinkedIn breach from several years ago. Here's the MySpace data that nobody cares about anymore. Or there would start to be, you know, random smaller breaches, that sort of thing. Uh, but admittedly, I ended up visiting there a lot because something changed and more interesting breaches ended up on um, that website eventually. That's sort of the midpoint um, and then some really significant ones uh, dumped there, such as uh, a breach of T-Mobile that happened last year that we'll talk about more in a bit. But basically, it was a low-level forum that you see plenty of on, of on the internet. And as is typical in the life cycle of some of these forums, once they attract more serious players, and I would probably say that once the media starts reporting on breaches on those forums, potentially, more people may go to them. Um something changes in the forums and they do become a bit more serious. All right. So what exactly happened here? Uh, it went down in late February. Is that right? So the forum went down itself in February. Nobody really knew what was going on, at least from the outside, but there was a telegram post from one of the site's administrators saying, Hey, the site has been seized. Maybe you should change your password or, or, or something like that. Like you couldn't, uh, you couldn't access the website. It was, it, it was just offline. Um, so there were rumors going on about that. And, you know, maybe the person, the administrator was just making it up. Maybe they just decided uh, enough was enough. Perhaps somebody else hacked it. You know, with lots of these other low level forums, we see constant hacking between rivals of dumping their databases, that sort of thing. Uh, so there's a lot of silence until just this week when the FBI, Europol, Swedish police, Romanian police as well, I think, and then I believe some other judicial authorities, they announce, we've seized this website. Uh, we've actually been investigating it for a very long time. We've arrested uh, the alleged main, main administrator. We've also arrested some other people as well. Uh, and raid forums no longer exist. And 
I mean, that's significant for two reasons. Obviously, the first is that it has stopped a major funneling point of stolen data. Um, even though it was a crappy forum for a lot of it, as I said, some big breaches did come through there to the point where I think you even have some ransomware operators like dumping some stuff on there uh, subtly. Um, but the second reason is that by shutting down the website, presumably the authorities now have access to some form of database. You know, so they'll may, they may have access to IP addresses, uh, passwords depending on how, or password hashes depending on how they were stored, usernames, activity, all that sort of stuff, which will probably be useful for further uh, investigations as well. All right. So something that caught my eye in the story, and you said you you know you visit this forum frequently. Uh, in the course of your reporting, of course. Um, something that caught my eye in the, the story is the announcement added that the site also acted as a venue for swatting, where people would make false reports to the police and trick them into arriving in the scene expecting a potential shootout, putting people's lives at risk. What else, when you had been searching around on this forum, was there any evidence that you saw of other stuff beyond just people selling data and like how like basic hacks and that kind of thing? Was that kind of thing also going on there that you saw? Yeah, so the leak marketplace, as it was called, was actually kind of a relatively small part of the forum, I guess. You know, that's just the bit I would always go to because, of course, that's the the main bit I'm interested in. But the very name Raid Forums, you know, this is also mentioned in the indictment, is that it falls back to that, for lack of a better way of doing it, you know, horrendous internet subculture of raiding where you would harass or you would dogpile or you would do something else to a target and that is the you know the originating point of this forum where people would organize raids here and then they would go about and do them and from there you know swatting as you mentioned that's going to come up as well and then as part of that harassment maybe you want to hack into somebody's account maybe you want to digitally harass them and that's where stuff like the leaks marketplace may come in useful uh, as well. All right. Well, let's talk about that leaks marketplace because you had a follow-up story also kind of after this all happened, um, which is interesting. T-Mobile secretly bought its customers' data from hackers to stop leak. It failed. What exactly happened here? So, I mean, first off, uh, I'll say what it's not and it is because you you may read uh, in passing and you may get a false impression and that false impression is that this was extortion you know oh company tries to to come uh, hackers steal data they try to ransom company saying pay us and we we won't release it that sort of thing that happens day in day out that is not what this story is it is not extortion um so last year started in part on raid forums, but then also I was having direct communication with people involved in the seller anyway. But basically somebody hacked into T-Mobile and they stole social security numbers, driver license information, a ton of really personal data. And it was something like 120 million records were stolen. Um, T-Mobile was kind of slow in acknowledging the hack and then they eventually um, confirmed it. Um, During that time, there were a few posts on raid forums from the seller who I spoke to where they were saying, hey, we're going to sell 120 million, we're going to sell 30 million, you know, as they do. Um, It turns out, in this court record, now it doesn't mention, it doesn't name T-Mobile, but what we did was we compared the timelines and the information in the indictment with what we know from our conversations with the seller and the post on raid forums, and we determined, oh, 
what is talking about in this indictment is the T-Mobile breach. It's the same breach, but it provides a bit of color of what happened behind the scenes, which is that T-Mobile hired a third party to try and buy exclusive access to this data. So basically, hey, we will give you $150,000 in Bitcoin if you only sell the data to us. They're posing as a sort of hacker customer at this point. And the, the, the methodology behind that is like, well, if this third party can buy exclusive rights to the data, then it's not going to leak, you know, because we've paid the hacker and we'll have the data. And then obviously we're not going to leak it because we're working for T-Mobile. Um, and that was the plan. But it failed. <laughs> and the hackers continued, apparently, to offer the T-Mobile for sale to other people as well. Uh, I, I think just the main thing it shows that, you know, obviously, oh, criminals can't be trusted. I, I, I don't necessarily believe that. I think some criminals can be trusted because there is a business incentive to be reliable and trustworthy. But the main thing it shows to me is some of the pretty shadowy tactics that companies or firms working for companies in so-called instant response may deploy in a fast-moving situation like this. You know, I imagine this happens a lot. But it's rare that we get to see it in the court document. I there's a fun coda here too. Um, can you tell me what has become of that third party company? Well, I, I, I'll dance around this a little bit because the court record does not name the third party. Okay. Um, but T-Mobile in a later statement said Mandiant worked on the incident response. So then you could draw some lines there. I'm not going to say Mandiant is the third party. What I will say, though, is that Mandiant then entered a long-term partnership with T-Mobile to help provide more cybersecurity services. And what I think you're alluding to is that Google then acquired Mandiant as well. So there is a pretty funny just story there of going from potentially being the party behind this to then being acquired by Google. You know, I mean, Mandiant are, Mandiant are incredibly good at what they do. So, you know, I'm not surprised that Google acquired them. It, it is kind of fascinating to watch companies figure out how to deal with all of this, right? All this stuff is pretty new. Um, and, every like, the legal frameworks aren't completely in place in a lot of places. And you just have these large corporations just trying to see what works, I guess. Um, not that T-Mobile isn't kind of an incompetent company in general, but that's... A separate issue. All right, we've got we've got one more. Uh, this is something that I worked on this week with Jordan Pearson, um, Ethereum programmer jailed for North Korea trip, wanted to clone dogs, become a crypto hero. I mean, really, the headline I think here speaks for itself. JC, I'm sure you don't have any questions about what's going on here, right? No. All I would say is that there is a very funny photo from the DOJ that they somehow got uh, of this person. Yeah, there it is. And it's just that smiley face on the right-hand side. Smiley face, no sanctions. And, I mean, that sold the story to me. I would go and read it just so you can get a better look at that photo, really. Yeah, let me let me go through this a little bit here. So this, this gentleman on the left uh, that we're looking at is Virgil Griffiths. And he is kind of a... He, uh, a, a bit, a Bitcoin, uh, or not a Bitcoin, uh, a blockchain hero. I would say he's somebody that's pretty well known and well liked in that community. 
worked on Ethereum, worked on a bunch of other different things, has had a bunch of kind of wild and crazy schemes uh, that he's uh, uh, been a part of throughout the years, including um, he was talking about attempting to clone Shiba Inu dogs uh, and give them away to people with Dogecoin. Um, fan of crazy stunts. Also very smart, very intelligent, um, knows his stuff back to front. Um, per, is perhaps uh, not uh, uh, street smart, uh, as we will see. So uh, in 2019, he was uh, he went to North Korea uh, to lecture on the power of the blockchain. Um, he went to the State Department because the the DPRK is not a place that you can just go, um, or you're not supposed to just go. So he goes to the State Department. The U.S. State Department says, "Hey." I want to take a trip to North Korea and attend this conference they're having on the blockchain and lecture. Um, the Department of Justice or the State Department says, no, don't do that. He goes anyway. Um, so we have people that are on the ground with him, including uh, journalist Ethan Liu, who subsequently wrote about this story uh, in a pretty interesting way because he was there for a lot of it on the ground. Um, Liu said that as they were walking around almost immediately after they'd gotten off the off the plane, um, <laughs> Virgil said, you know, I wasn't supposed to come. I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing something that the state department told me not to do. This is an unsanctioned mission. Uh, and kind of, and then he, he was very enamored with North Korean culture. He bought himself a Mao style suit here that he wore during his lecture on the blockchain. Um, and according to what the state department alleges, uh, then can, be, told the, his North Korean audience that the blockchain would be good for all sorts of things, like bypassing sanctions. As you can see on the whiteboard here, uh, there's the smiley face with no sanctions written on it, um, and that a smart track, a smart contract, could perhaps be used to help with nuclear negotiations with the United States. As in, you know, if North Korea wants sanctions uh, alleviated, um, and the United States wants nuclear missiles uh, destroyed that the, the smart contract could be enabled so that the moment that the missiles go offline, then the the sanctions are lifted via the smart contract. Um, he gets back <laughs> into the country. He again, immediately goes to the state department and says like, Hey, I just, you know, I just lectured um, uh, and everything was fine. Um, some months go by state department reaches out again and says like, Hey, the FBI wants to talk to you. And he says, Sure. And he goes and he talks to the FBI uh, without a lawyer. He said, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, And he really just kind of tells them what he did and was in the initial stages of communicating with authorities, uh, despite, again, the protests of his friends and colleagues saying, like, hey, if you're going to go talk to the FBI, do bring a lawyer. Um, And he didn't. Uh, He was kind of foolhardy about it. Uh, And then... They, they, he also gave them his cell phone of his own volition, um, which included phrases, according to the court documents, said things like, uh, you know, somebody's like, what do they want to talk to you about? Like, why would they want to use blo- blockchain? He's like, oh, I don't know, to get past sanctions or something. So, <laughs> uh, again, people, if you're ever, if you're ever in charge, if you're ever in trouble with federal, with uh, federal authorities, please don't talk to them without a lawyer present. Uh, I don't know if that would have helped him in this situation, but just it's good practice. Uh, he ends up getting arrested um, and has 
pled guilty, uh, is going to serve five years. Now, the maximum sentence for this was 20. Um, one of the incredible pieces of the story and uh, the things that we saw in court documents were that he had there was an incredible outpouring of support from the blockchain community, uh, kind of writ large, people that he'd worked with at Ethereum, uh, childhood friends, his parents. A lot of people wrote letters directly to the judge saying like, hey, he's a good guy. He really knows that he screwed up. You know, please, like, let's not ruin his life over this whole thing. Um, and he's been contrite uh, and has said that he knows that he screwed up, et cetera, now. And it's that was one of the fascinating parts of the story, as silly and sad as it all is, and, like, as funny as this picture is of him in the mouse suit with the no sanctions on the whiteboard, like, to read, I mean, it's probably a hundred pages of things that people had written about him um, and what a good guy he was. That was kind of a fascinating part of this to me. Um, so uh, uh, somebody in chat says he was too unconcerned when the FBI chats were agreed to to by him for sure. And that was his big misstep. But he is a great person and a developer. And that is basically like that's kind of what my takeaway was from spending a lot of time reading, reading these notes and like researching the story is that he's maybe a little bit naive about the the ways of the world and, and like international relations and how to deal with federal authorities, but seem like a good, good person and a good developer. And uh, don't go to North Korea and tell them how to bypass sanctions with blockchain. It's not going to go well for you. Uh, that's probably the main takeaway. Yeah. That's probably the main takeaway. Do you have any other questions about, about the saga of Virgil Griffiths? No, it's just very briefly on, you know, when you see that outpouring of support, you, yeah, you, you do end up seeing that when you, read through as many court dockets uh, as we do, people are complicated, you know, and some media coverage, you know, depending on the speed or the depth at which you're able to do it can wash over that. You know, and I think that's just important to remember, even when you're talking about criminals, well, especially when you're talking about criminals, you know, we're all complicated. Yeah, I think so. Um, and it's rare that we get to read these court documents that have, that have that much of extra stuff about the character of a person. That's very, very atypical. So it was very interesting to see. So, all right. That's all for this week on Cyber. Everybody, there's that lovely outro music. If you like the show, uh, please like and subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a comment, rate. It helps other people find the show. We are doing two of these a week. We're broadcasting them. We're recording them live on Twitch. Uh, This will be up as a podcast here very shortly, in case you missed it. Thank you uh, for the shout-out, Scott. I really appreciate that in chat. Uh, And we will be back next week with two more shows about all the wild, crazy stuff that's going on in the cyber world. Thank you, everybody. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.